Hey, what's going on, CNFers? You know, as luck would have it, or fortune, or whatever you want to call it, I picked up How to Be Like Mike, Life Lessons About Basketball's Best. And I was feeling all kinds of good about the wisdom I might find in this. And then it, you know, it says something to the extent of, Just for teens, Mike in the Mirror. And I realized just how low I may have sunk. Which isn't entirely true. I'm going to read this anyway. Um, but, you know, the title, be, How to Be Like Mike, struck a chord because my guest this week is Michael Copperman. MikeCopperman.com is where you can find out all things Mike, all things Copperman. And uh, he's on the show this week to talk about his killer memoir, Teacher. Two Years in the Mississippi Delta. It's an, uh, an amazing book. I encourage everyone to go out and buy it. It's almost sold through its uh, its first hardcover print run. So if you want that coveted first printing, got to do it now. That's where we're at. As always, I love to keep these intros short. Uh, usual housekeeping, as you know. To take this to the next level, I'm going to need a little support. And uh, the support I need is continued download, share the episode with people that you think might get something out of it, and uh, if you can, take a, a minute or two and, and, and rate it. Uh, I think that'll help bump it up the, the catalog, if you will, and it'll just uh, help us reach more, more people and hopefully inspire more people to keep doing what they do and help to support the wonderful writers who take an hour out of their week, out of their busy weeks to come on the show and talk shop. So that would be my one ask of you. So um, without further ado, here's Mike Copperman. I did grow up in Eugene. Okay. Yep. So, so uh, Eugene. growing up in Eugene, what do you, what do you want to be when you were a kid? You know, I'm one of those weird people who actually always said that I wanted to be a writer. Nice. <laughs> like I said that when I was, I think, something like two or three, and I pretty much stuck with that all the way through. A lot of people um, I've spoken with uh, on the podcast, like they've had that kind of crystallized vision when they were little that they wanted to be writers. So yeah, you're not alone. But it is, it's, it's really cool when people have that, that vision from such a young age. Yeah, I, I don't know if I uh, I don't know if I was a uh, let's see I don't know I think if I could go back in time and realize what that would entail maybe I would uh, maybe I would you know change my plan to pick a Wall Street banker and a, and a uh, and a writer on the side yeah but um but uh, but no not really right <laughs> yeah um yeah no it's uh, I've always sort of known that this was my thing uh, I've always sounded kind of like myself I mean there's like this essay that I have from age like eight or nine um that's like this immensely uh retrospective memoir uh portrait of you know this uh sort of grandfather figure in my life and it's like it sounds exactly like me in high retrospective mode you know what i mean it was like it was like you know i i, I looked at him and i could tell that at some point there had been great pain and sorrow in his life and you know that the years had weighed heavily on him like what kind of eight or nine year old are you you know like <laughs> yeah so you're reincarnated from somebody and, and they inhabited your soul as an eight as an eight and nine year old 
Yeah, no. And, uh, and, and so interestingly, I mean, I, I think I really haven't changed all that much. <laughs> well, so what, uh, you know, your father was a do- is a doctor, correct? Yeah. And, yeah, my uh, family doc here in town. Yeah. So was there any pressure from your dad to kind of follow in that, in that vein? Or did they, or did your folks just like wholeheartedly support the, you as you pursued a sort of a, a career that involved writing and educating? You know, I think that, um, so I think my father would certainly have loved it if either my brother or myself had been called into the medical profession. Um, fortunately my brother's wife is, uh, is becoming a doctor. She's in residency right now. So that is satisfying that itch. But my, my folks always gave me the freedom to sort of be, um, I think the person that I, that I wanted to be. Um, I think that they tended to trust me. I think they had their skepticism during, you know, the, long 12 years of labor making this book when I made, you know, something starting at like $22,000 a year or whatever, right? Mm. <laughs> Teaching full time. Um, but I think that, uh, I think that they always really did believe in me. Um, and while their frustrations, which were my frustrations and not sort of being able to break through or have a book, you know, were, were real. I think, uh, I think they really had faith in me in those ways. So that, that support always meant a lot. And what does your brother do? Uh, my brother is um, a, in a postdoc in physics, although in many ways he's more at the sort of intersection of chemistry and physics. My brother's the real smart one in the family between the two of us. <laughs> um, you know, he's got an IQ that's off the charts, and uh, it's my understanding that he may have just solved some kind of like crazy problem in the working group that he just joined which uh, they're submitting to nature immediately with him as an author after being there for three and a half months. So, you know, I I think, uh, I think, you know, I I wish I could rely on, on, on brains, but you know, instead of all I've got is some words. So. (laughs) And uh, do you, how close are you and your brother in age? Uh, He's two years younger than me or two, two years and a couple of months. And uh, how did you guys feed off each other when you were growing up? We were definitely, you know, I, I don't think competitive is the right word. Um, I think we started off being a little antagonistic the way that brothers would. And then at some point, like about, you know, like I, we had this conversation like eight or nine, like we were put into timeout, you know, at the same time by my parents who thought that, you know, they would stop fighting by putting us both, uh, uh, you know, off by ourselves that we understood that it was the equal punishment. Yeah. And instead what we determined was that it was probably best to band together against my parents Ah. Um, who were, you know, somewhat stern disciplinarians of another age. So we, uh, we, we basically did that from there on out. It was a solid front. Do you and I think, think that continues today. So I, w- I wonder, do you, do you think your parents might have done that on purpose? Like thinking, like maybe if we growl, if we scold them together, they'll actually kind of they'll for- forge a better relationship and be with each other instead of against each other. You, you know, I think that they probably had a premonition that that was a good idea. What they did not realize, of course, was that, uh, you know, these alliances, of course, need something to run up against, and it was going to be not necessarily to their benefit, right, Right. or collusion. So, yeah. Yeah, they might have been inadvertently creating a team, uh, a a team of which they would have to fight against. (laughs) No. Well, it's okay, you know. I think they'll catch up at some point. (laughs) So as you, like, progress through middle school and high school, like, what... What were you like? What were you into uh, through those years? I know I, I know you wrestled. You talk about that in the book a bit. Um, but I, uh, what what were you uh, you into? 
Well, you know, I was, uh, I mean, I was into books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, we used to like take these baskets down to the Eugene public library and I would just take away, you know, actually me and my brother, both, we would just take away, you know, cartloads of books as many as they would let us check out. Um, and so I think like probably by the age of 12 or 13, I think I had probably read every single science fiction book in the Eugene public library. Mm-hmm. That was my sort of early love. So I went, you know, all the way on through just about everything that was high fantasy and science fiction. Um, what were some of those books that you read? Some real formative titles? Man. I mean, I liked, I liked Heinlein in retrospect. Of course, Heinlein is something of a misogynist, uh, mm-hmm. even though he's, he is a very talented writer, but, um, you know, he certainly had an appeal to a, a adolescent teenager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, moon is a harsh mistress, moon is a harsh mistress. And, um, Oh, I mean, right. Those, the whole, the whole list. I can't, it's funny. I mean, obviously the, the, what's the famous one, the man about from Mars or whatever. I'm getting the title wrong, but, uh, it's kind of a classic of the sixties literature. Mm-hmm. It's where that word grok comes from. Right? Mm. Um, you know, I, and then I, of course I got into the punny stuff, which also has an appeal to an appeal to adolescent males, uh, Piers Anthony and, uh, all of those ridiculous books. Um, and you know, I love Tolkien and all the fantasy really like, it's interesting. I kind of stopped reading. I mean, right about the time that I probably turned 14 or 15 and like the last set of books that I read there were probably the last writer that I came in with was the writer, Tad Williams and like mm. his other world series. And I think that's really where I stopped. <laughs> um, stopped reading like sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, those, those contained worlds were safe for me because I was like, you know, four foot tall and one of, you know, two or three, not white kids at a school that was relatively working class, um, at least through my early elementary and then through my middle school years. And so I was, you know, kind of harassed and, and bullied and I was tough and mean. And so yeah. I wasn't necessarily willing to like acquiesce at the same time. I mean, you know, I was also like trained in Aikido from a very young age. My mm-hmm. father has a fifth degree black belt and I have a black belt and I trained and taught actually at some points. And then I kind of found wrestling as a result of, you know, Maybe wanting to protect myself, but also just always having that be something which had an appeal to me. Yeah, well, uh, that's a a very sports in general can do this, but especially a sport of that nature where you can really take on an adversary and like really you can, uh, as you write about in uh, in the book and also in your essay too, how like one of your father's proud father's proudest moments of you was like when you really just ground out a match and like won it with pure grit, and that's something that uh, probably. Sp- spoke a lot to your personality at the time, you know, having been maybe a little bit bullied and then being able to grind something out against someone must have been very validating and, you know, supportive for you through that time. Yeah. I mean, my folks were good. I, I you know, I was probably, um, nearly kicked out of my early elementary school cause I fought so many times, but when the <laughs> principal would call my mother, my mother would be like, Oh, he was bullied again. I told him they do that again. You hit him in the face. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, not, not, uh, probably parent of the year material early on there, but, um, but actually I think that that's actually probably one of the things that carried me was my parents sitting to have my back because I wasn't unfair to other kids. Yeah. Um, I was quiet and silent and super, super kind and I had a lot of will and willpower. And so, you know, I found a sport where you could take yourself pretty far really on the basis of will. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think that that one of the things that I learned from that sport carried me a long way, even though, you know, I probably wasn't meant finally to be an athlete. 
given that I don't have a great deal of athletic talent. (laughs) Um, You know, sports, a lot of times, the the principle of the athletic endeavor can apply to a lot of things. I think it's really, really applies to the arts in a lot of ways, dealing with a sort of rejection and then that perseverance. And what did you take away from your athletic endeavors that you've applied to your, your writing career? Well, I think the emphasis on process is something that you learn in sports. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and I, I think I would really stand, stand by that idea that you need to pay more attention to how it is you're doing what you're doing and not what the outcome necessarily is. I think persistence, um, and tenacity are all things that I probably in some ways found through sports to some extent. Um, you know, and I think I needed those things, uh, Certainly to like sort of, you know, make it through a literary climate that's not always rewarding to literary writers, um, yeah. at least ones that aren't necessarily the most commercial. So, yeah, no, I, I think that I did learn a lot of things from from athletics. Yeah, the culture of athletics was not necessarily one which was always, I think, like particularly kind to a, a serious, nerdy, intellectual young person Yeah. at the same time. But um well, it's but like I in Varsity found... Blues, like you know, James Vanderbeek's character, he's reading Catcher in the Rye in his playbook. <laughs> right. There. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's a... yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a classic. Yeah, it's a kind of a classic, uh, <laughs> an example of that, right? Yeah, right. yeah. It's uh, it's funny you talk about process because um, you know Brian Cranston, the actor who played you know Walter White on Breaking Bad, uh, among other things, um, in his I've heard interviews with him, but also in his recent book, uh, A Life in Parts. He talks about, um, you know, he felt like he was playing on the junior varsity level for a long time in his acting career. Like he was all right, he's making money, doing commercials, some bit parts here, um, but he was always he was a little too focused on outcome. And uh, it was when he started focusing on on process and having process be the reward in and of itself. That's when things really started to take off for him. And I think in any endeavor like this, like if you try to focus on or money or wherever your publication credits are coming from, it'll, you'll drive yourself mad. So uh, I think what, exactly what you're saying is like focusing on the process has to be its own reward. That's right. Well, and, and it, at least from my perspective, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't consider things like what will sell or market or yeah. uh, what people actually want to read or what they find entertaining, right? I think that most writers take those things into account. But to me, you know... <laughs> It's pretty easy to despair when you look out at the, you know, at the literary environment and you kind of roll your eyes. Like, what is it that is valued? How are things marketed? What does that marketing consist of? Could you really write something for the market that would be, you know, anything honestly, but like sort of imitative direct? And at least in my case, that's not true. I think there are people who, I'm not saying that you, uh, I couldn't write an essay for a purpose or do something like that, right? But to me, I got to have my heart in it, and then I have to have something to say or something at stake. Um, in me, especially in nonfiction, and those are the things that can drive me. And so, really, like you know, trying to trying to um, <laughs> trying to chase the money has never really been um, has never really been in my wheelhouse. And I've learned that I had to trust that impulse, right? Which just yeah. means sticking with the process and how you would write. It took me a lot of years to get the MFA out of my system mm-hmm. um, as a writer and learn to trust myself again. Yeah, and so you know, increasingly, that's sort of what I turn to. It, you know, I, I need I need to let my own inner compass guide me. That's it's funny you say that. Get the MFA out of your system. That same thing happened to me. Um, 
it's when during during my time at, at my MFA program, you know, an agent came down. He gave a gave a talk to everyone. He like ruffled a lot of feathers uh, by saying like uh, what he's looking for. He's like, oh, problem with a lot of you know, basically like you guys is he's like the MFA voice, which always comes across as this kind of uniform, like far too poetic and lyrical. And uh, I felt like the MFA kind of it in some sense is like drummed out what was sort of raw and natural about my own my own skill and w- talent whatever that was so yeah it took it took a bunch it took a, like a good three to four years of like i don't know finding that voice again like it was that like how, what was that process like for you like trying to get back to who you were that eight-year-old kid writing uh, instead of the what you were taught at the mfa well i think that in some ways i had the I had the good fortune of of writing a thinly veiled memoir as a novel in some ways early on that pushed me towards parts of the the work that became this book teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was in a way a kind of, um, in a way a kind of gift because, you know, while it didn't work as fiction when I stripped away what, uh, what was made up, which wasn't very much, and then tried to inhabit what was true, you know, it very quickly had some life. I I think though that I had a lot of ideas about what, um, what was good and what kind of writer I needed to be. And I mean, you know, I had teachers who perhaps meant well and did a lot to teach me how to read, but who, you know, um, because I was young, you know, imposed some of their ideas, uh, good naturedly, right. Or, or enthusiastically, but about what, you know, anything that I was creating should be, or, you know, people who wanted me to write like the only three or four writers that they respected, which, you know, essentially were, you know, no go, going no further afield perhaps than Chekhov, Babel, O'Connor, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and maybe Malamud if you wanted to, you know, get a little ethnic. I guess we have two. Jews. but i mean you know it's, <laughs> it's it which is not like a those are wonderful writers who i take a lot from um but i think that you know i, I think that one thing that sometimes young writers mistake when they go through an mfa is the idea that they have to be what it is that their teachers will respond to or enjoy um and and not understanding perhaps that even those teachers themselves wouldn't want them to be <laughs> mm-hmm an imitation of Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just think that, um, I, I'm glad that I learned to appreciate those books and those, in those writers in fiction. Um, the, the thing that's nice is that because I didn't get my MFA in nonfiction, it left my prose voice relatively untouched. Mm-hmm. So, um, my prose voice, my nonfiction prose voice. Yeah. And so I, when I went back to that, when I wasn't explicitly writing fiction as much, um, you know, I think in some ways I became more willfully and idiosyncratically the person that I already was as opposed to trying to do something else. Whereas, yeah. you know, most of the fiction that I wrote on my MFA was really pretty awful. So, mm. <laughs> uh, I, I uh, saw this great uh, interview with Cheryl Strayed on, uh, on YouTube and uh, she had this great question. Uh, it's kind of a two, like a two-part question that she poses to her workshop students. And um, the first is, what question is at the core of your work? And um, 
I, before I go to the second one, I'd want to ask you, like, what when you're when you're writing teacher or some some essays, but especially teacher, um, like, what question was at the core of that the, throughout the writing process as you were sort of generating the pages? I think that frequently the question that I'm asking is. Or, or that, or that is often being posed is, um, let's see, what is true that I don't want to admit, um, both within myself and about the world that I'm interacting in. Mm. Um, so in teacher, that plays out, and most especially with regards to myself and some of the culpability that I think I I had for you know some of the things I did, which were not particularly educational, um, you know, imposing my ideals and my ideas onto those kids, having expectations which weren't maybe necessarily possible, um, expecting to somehow, like, fix um, an immensely divided and segregated and racist society and, and heal somehow those kids and push them towards some sort of bright future. You know, the, the, my idea of self was predicated on that. And so, of course, it was completely crushed, right? Mm-hmm. And I had to tell myself some other story. And so that usually I think what's driving me is sort of like, what, what is it that I that I think is true? And then yeah. beneath that, what is actually going on? Um, and finally, I think beneath that, you know, what, let's say, how do I, how do I reckon with the mistakes that I've made or the things that I am culpable for? or the harm that came to others, um, and my role in it. And then how do I, how do you go on and how do you go on and keep your sense of yourself and how do you, you know, how do you sort of find some sort of strength in, in, in those things? Um, you know, that, that sounds (laughs) like not a very clear answer necessarily to that question, but I, it actually kind of undergirds most essays I write, whether I'm writing about home and family or friends or trauma or event or these kids who I, you know, loved despite everything else that maybe was in the way there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think when Strayed would probably say something like it's all writing towards love, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, which I think is in some ways a fair and correct and not always useful answer. But I, I think for me, I, I'm always sort of saying, okay, so what did I care about? What was here? There's something here. And there's something that I don't know. So it's always got to be that posing to the, of the question. And so I think what is true is maybe not the best way of phrasing that. But there's something like that that, that usually has to do with me trying to hold myself responsible. Yeah. And how good or not good an essay is that I write usually hinges on how much was at stake and how much I've given up. Yeah. Yeah, and and her her next question is like if you're if you're so compelled to answer if that first question is what gets you to to the computer or to the page to get some of the get the work going at some point you need to put it in terms of a someone on the other side of that book and so like wh- what is the question that you're trying to answer for others was the other question she was asking and uh it, it could be in this in this instance you're you're trying to illustrate just what it's like to be for for to these students uh, for what it's like to be them but also to be on the other side trying to to make an impact and make that change yeah no i i think you know in 
and I mean, once a book goes out into the world, then you end up spending a lot of time thinking about um, something that I, I wouldn't use the vulgar term marketing, right? But you mm. think about how you talk about the book and its relevance to other people. And, you know, yeah. I think, I'm trying to think about it, like in the body of my work, what is it I'm trying to, to show or do? I, I do think, I think that if, if what is true or at stake that I don't want to admit um, or how I can sort of arrive at, at something that is felt um, and significant is is what drives me when I'm sitting down and I'm just trying to feel my way towards that intuitively. I think what makes you know the work relevant to others, no matter what I'm writing about, usually is that if I've done that right, I think I've given something up that's honest. And with regards to this book, you know, I, I think that what what the book does is it's true. It it shows you educational inequality. It, it shows you um, it shows you <laughs> that America has clearly not come so far mm. from the persistent, you know, um, racial inequalities that stemmed from American history, especially in a place like Rome, Mississippi, yeah. um, for, for young black people who didn't have a choice about which side of the tracks they were born into. Um, I think that, you know, and I think that it also in some ways has to do with the intersection of myself and, and that. Yeah, the the story that I that I tell that people haven't necessarily seen is, you know, my own sort of intersectionality. I mean, you know, it's uh, as the kids would say, it's it's you know, it's the American samurai or the Chinaman that <laughs> yeah. comes to the Delta to you know teach the kids. And I don't give anybody a savior story because that wasn't my story. Yeah, um, to tell. And so I think in those ways, you know, I think there is a hunger for teaching narratives that don't do the two things that we usually expect. Mm. And uh, it's funny, like ba backing up a, a little bit, you know, you, you kind of like disparage your own intelligence with uh, re regards to your brother. Like, but you did go to this little place called Stanford. And uh, and uh, so what was, you know, the, going through Stanford, did you always want to be a a teacher or did you come to that um, partway through your, your schooling? You know, I never really had all the, I, I never would have said that education was what I was first and foremost interested in. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of myself as an educator or a teacher necessarily. I was doing things which were instructional. I was teaching Aikido classes. Yep. I helped like create a class that dealt with sort of like uh, multiracial identity issues and, and, uh, and I, I guess I did some other things which were relative instructional, but I, 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 that was never my intent. Um, I think more, I <laughs> lucked into teaching and having taught badly and then learned to teach better and having seen what that meant, you know, I've sort of found myself, I found myself being made an educator. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I mean, that's, I guess the other thing that this book is about in a lot of ways, nothing else really that I have done with my life, certainly writing. I don't think as significant as the time that I spend in the classroom, mm -hmm. even when I'm not being a very good teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think that it enables me to give as generously as I possibly can to other people. Um, especially, you know, teaching writing now to 18 year olds. Um, and I should say 18 year olds who are low income, first gen students of diverse background. So yeah. usually those kids, um, 
they haven't had a lot sort of handed to them. Mm-hmm. And they're super, super capable, but they've not always gone to excellent schools. And I can validate their experiences and get them to learn to sort of find their voices. Um, and doing that makes me into a better version of myself. Yeah. So, you know, teaching something I found. Um, but it's been sort of the great gift in a lot of ways. It's the gift that the kids in Mississippi gave me in some ways. Yeah. So, not not f- gift of teaching well, but the gift yeah. <laughs> of like knowing that I wanted to do that thing better. Yeah. And what did um, what drew you to the Teach for America program? That's as you mentioned too. That's real competitive to get into. And um, so, what drew you to that? It's hyper competitive. Um, I was idealistic, um, and you know, and the the truth is that I. Uh, and and it's not in this book because I'm respecting somebody else's privacy. But I followed somebody else, you know, who uh-huh. was uh, my longtime partner in uh, in college throughout college, mm-hmm. um, who really wanted to go, um, and who was a far better teacher than I ever will be, <laughs> um, actually. So I, you know, I kind of followed coattails, which sounds ridiculous. But then, you know, I got my ass handed to me so badly that of course I sort of needed to go back a second year to try to do it better and and so on. But you know, in, in a lot of ways, I, I I really did have this like, you know, dangerous minds idea of what it was I was going to be doing. Yeah. Maybe not coded in the you know in the white savior complex sort of way, but but I I, I imagined doing something which turned out to be very very different from um, from what the actual experience was like. Yeah. And how, how quickly did, as you say, kind of like get your ass handed to you? Like what, at what point with like, was it day one? Well, you know, I think, day negative I, think one? <laughs> uh, I think, I think things started to unravel within certainly the first couple of days. Yeah. It quickly became clear that I did not know how to manage an actual full on classroom. Yeah. I can't exactly get back to, I mean, it's interesting, but you know, it, it it's, <laughs> It's become a blur, even though I've spent uh, an immense amount of time trying to reconstruct and recreate, you know, those that those early. I mean, even like those early three or four months, mm-hmm. um, they all kind of blend together. Um, but I think it was, I think it was fairly early on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The, what kind of you know self talk did you use to try to get yourself into the right mindset to to uh, you know try to to try to i don't know um you know make the make the make the make a, an impact that you wanted to make and get people excited to at least you know focus for a little bit and maybe show show them show them that there that there is a lot of potential there cuz you, you dealt with a lot of re- really bright hard working kids there that uh, might not otherwise have been you know told otherwise i mean you know i i think I think I tried to talk the best game that I could. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, my self-talk. I mean, other than the fact that I probably perpetually talk to myself and look like a crazy person. Um, I think that I was probably so overwhelmed in the moment that it was almost, it's almost a, I mean, there is, there's a performativity to teaching, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're in the act of doing, you don't necessarily know. But the things that I was, you know, telling the kids about, what we were doing and why we were doing it and what the world was like and sort of naming those things. Um, you know, I was grabbing from every source that I had. I was begging, borrowing and stealing. I was being positive. I was borrowing from my keto training. I was thinking back to every good teaching experience I ever had. Um, and I, who even really knows exactly what I said mm-hmm. or what I, you know, what I really meant. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's interesting to sort of get an alternate perspective because I recently got to talk to a bunch of the kids I taught when I, I went back to release this book um, to the Mississippi Book Festival and then to some bookstores throughout Mississippi. And so I met and met a bunch of the kids who I had taught. And um, it's interesting looking back at their version of me because, you know, I'm somewhat hard on myself in this book. And, you know, they had this idea of this, you know, largely immensely positive experience and these things that they were told that they remembered Mm. you know of course i'm selecting in some ways for those kids who have avoided the uh, incarceration or other things that you know can happen and when you sort of are are coming from that sort of community with those options but you know a number of these kids have finished college and remembered being told that they were going to go to college Mm. and that they could so you know i I think it's funny because we think about these things as being you know this like this rhetoric right but i guess in some ways um i guess in some ways the things that i told them about what we were doing and why are that they could stuck i was making it all up on the spot what compelled you to to write the book well i mean you know a lot of things in some ways I, these kids have stayed with me um mm-hmm. all of these years uh it might sound slightly insane to say that i hear their voices as maybe a late section sort of frames things, but in some ways I do. Um, in some ways I've carried those kids and their lives and their stories with me um, all of these years. And that was not purely a benign sort of uh, sort of burden, uh, burden and inspiration, right? It was a burden and a bind. Mm-hmm. I, a part of me is always going to be in the Delta. And so I, um, yeah, I, you know, I, <laughs> I wanted to write the book because there was something in it about about those kids that I needed to understand or because I think I needed to tell the story so that I could get back to maybe what was finally true, which was that whether or not they were going to be all right or not, since there are no guarantees, and whether or not what I had done was unforgivable or not. Um, I had been changed and I had loved those kids. And in some ways, I still, you know, do love people that they became. Mm-hmm. I was young and I didn't know enough to have boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I needed to understand what had happened to me there. But it wasn't really a self-focused thing necessarily, except in as much as I'm trying to let the reader also understand what that is. Um, I, I needed to write the book because I needed to know in some ways that like what I had done I could live with if I told the truth about it as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, the stories that I had told myself. Um, and so I think that that's what, that's sort of what I needed to do. It was a way of, you know, it was a way of writing myself whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, people like to say that writing about something doesn't, um, fix anything. Uh, or, or as Andre Dubus says, it does not rid me of anything he says in the last essay that he ever publishes in the New Yorker 18 months before he'll die. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think that that's, true that it doesn't rid you of anything but i think there's something to be said for the reckoning or the 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 ways that when witness becomes shared it releases you from some part of that carrying even if nobody ever really reads your book and sees what it is yeah. <laughs> um and so you know i think for me that's that's sort of what finally drove me to the material and I, you know i should i should say i i have also written a, a novel that is grounded in some ways in in these kids and that experience and i had been sort of these years when i separated the projects it became clear to me that um 
it became clear to me that I could write a memoir. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems somewhat ridiculous because it sort of took me going to Breadloaf in 2012 to just sort of realize that I needed to write a memoir, which yeah. just meant I was around all these people and they had all written books. Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to be there with them and it seemed as if they could write books because they just sat down and wrote them. And I thought, well, maybe I should sit down and write this as a memoir because I did publish the five things that are true from it. And, you know, one's anthologized in the, in, you know, creative nonfiction's best of in the third edition. And one of them just got taken by creative nonfiction and one of them's in Guernica and the other one, the Oxford American just paid me for. And, you know, I guess maybe, this is a nonfiction project. Yeah. It seems ridiculous, right? <laughs> but, you know, at the time, I, uh, I, I thought of those as being these alternate projects, and the real project was this other thing. And yeah. so I let go of that project, that fiction project, and said, okay, I'm going to inhabit this. And I had a manuscript in four months. Wow. Um, and, then, and then I went back to the fiction, which I'm nearly done with. So it's a, it's a weird sort of world, right? We force these these forms or these ideas on the things or we have ideas about what something has to be. And I, um, I wish that I knew 12 or 13 years ago when I started doing all this, that you had to just trust yourself. Yeah. Um, and let, you know, the work be it its own form and not depend on your teachers or other people to tell you what it was. Um, what was that four month sort of binge write like you know what was uh, what was your routine throughout that whole process as you were generating like, you know, a book in you know what a 16 weeks well i mean so i had the good fortune of having formed a certain number of pieces into nonfiction, um it, which actually was because i wrote them as fiction and then i realized every single thing i had said in them was true mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and so and so I tried, you know, so I tried sending them out and of course they got, they got taken really quickly and I was like, oh, okay. Like, I guess that means that these are good. So I, I had these sort of core sections. Yeah, although they good got validation. Um, but, but I didn't have, I needed to go back and, and figure out what was also true. Um, and, and so I, um, I, you know, I looked at the fiction manuscript and I, I saved some pages, not very much, but some, some of it mm-hmm. that was within the realm of nonfiction. Uh, with some changes and inhabiting it. And then I just started, I went back to the source material because I had the good fortune of having written um, these long sort of like email letter word document things. And it was, I mean, it was like 250 pages of prose that I had saved. I I wasn't able to use most of it. Um, but I, I had that, that sort of immediate raw source of what it was that I had written down and said when I was there. So it was very easy to see the things that I wanted to believe that now I could see were not true with the years that had waited it, but I had that to look back at. And then I just sort of let myself, what's the word, let myself riff or write to rhythm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and see, which sounds sort of silly, but like, that's actually my, like, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm, uh, let's see, I am a terrible poet and I'm not very lyrically gifted, but I do write to rhythm and sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I just let myself sort of, you know, write what was there. Hmm. Um, and it was quick, you know, I mean, I, I'm saying four months, but I mean, it was probably, there were a couple stops, which was, I got a bunch of it together initially and sort of didn't construct it or form it. And I sent it to my friend, Heather Ryan, who's a really brilliant prose writer. And also the person who helped me start the Oregon Writers Collective. Oh, and, yeah. um, and then she, um, and she wrote back like, you know, this seems good, but this is not a book. Mm-hmm. So write it as a book. And so then I went back and sort of rewrote again. 
and then you know and then right found an agent rather relatively quick for it we did another revision and it was off so and the uh the initial title was gone is that right i think that was one of the work yeah that was the working title when i went to the editors with it is in the, in the creative nonfiction essay, the Southern Sin issue. It was like you know, it, it was um, you know, in your little bio, it said it was you know, tentatively titled "Gone." And I, I wanted to ask you like what what that meant and uh, why that was the working title and why you ultimately cha- went with "Teacher." Hmm. Yeah. So, um, well, so you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of children speaking, which is really the the, uh, yeah. the dialect that I know. Yeah. Uh, no, that I that I could try to recreate for the page, and the system that I created for dialect to try to represent it is phonetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, the sounds are there and not necessary, and the spelling is there so that you'll read the word the way that it sounds, even if it's not necessarily the meaning. Right? I don't use apostrophes and and things like that. Yeah. Um. And so, of course, gone means absence to most of us, and I was long out of the delta. And much of what I was thinking about were things which seemed to me irretrievably lost or in the past, but gone, you know, as the kids would say it mm-hmm. in a book which is really based around them and their voices is, um, is uh, you know, it means going going to, yeah, right? Which is uh, imminence. And so in, in absence, imminence or something like that. I think that's the definition of immanence, right? I don't actually know how to pronounce that word. I've never said it out loud, but you know, there's something there's something in that idea that has always been sort of central to to the things that I'm I'm writing about. Um, and so I, you know, it's poetic, and I could tell a little story about it, and it seemed and it seemed to me to be appropriate. Of course, it was going to be read as gone. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right, like Gone Girl, or yeah. there's already a 14 books called Gone, and there was just a blockbuster that had come out that was called Gone, and so you know, yeah, my agent got it. He was like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how was it very difficult for you to to relive a lot of the material that you wrote about to kind of dig at that scar? I think that was difficult. Um, it's interesting to try to go back into what that was and what it meant. Um, you know, it's, it, you kind of put it all in and it's not catharsis, like where you get beyond something, you have to sort of live it or own it. Um, I did it over so many different periods of time that I think I was helped in some ways, but what I would finish a lot of these individual chapters, especially those that, um, are a bit of a punch to the gut, you know, I mean, I, I, it would take me down for a few days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, yeah. You know, or, or but often I let myself process these things as they would come up too in some of these sections that get put in. You know, so I I found out a lot of the things that I described finding out. I, I didn't write those things. So many of them after the fact, or you know, I was working with things that I had tried to write when I found out that something had happened. So mm. when you look back at uh, at your 22 year old self, like who do you see when you see that person? You know, it's it's interesting to me because I, I, I used to think, you know, oh, I saw such arrogance and naivete, and I was those things. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> at twenty two is, <laughs> right? Yeah, you inevitably are. Yeah. I mean, you'll be arrogant again, you know, and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, uh, 
I actually think that I, I look back now at that person and as much as obviously the, the innocence and the naivete and the arrogance were all going to be there, you know, I, I, um, I see, I see a kid with a good heart who didn't know any better mm. than the world he had sort of reckoned with. And, you know, and I, I didn't know what it was that I was seeing or what it meant it's taken me a lot of years to be able to look back at what I saw in Mississippi and, and recognize, you know, <laughs> among other things, just how deeply, um, <laughs> how deeply unjust and hypocritical a country we inhabit, mm-hmm. um, and what the system is or means. Right? We like to use this language about the American dream or um, or the system, but you know, finally, when I when I <laughs> When I was there, I I still believed in the rhetoric of you know yeah. of uplift and nose to the grindstone and hard work, um, and I think it's not that I don't believe in those things, um, still, but m- most people believe in those things or try to do those things. I think when I look back at it, I I see that I was basically a young person who had to be woken up. Mm-hmm to in some ways what America really was and that only my own sort of unending failures could do that. And then I would have to leave and reckon with the guilt of what that was because the truth was that I did have a tremendous amount of privilege and good fortune. You know, I had parents who were still married and who had given me every educational opportunity I could have. Um, I didn't necessarily have um, a life free from facing, you know, various kinds of overt racism, but those were institutional barriers to my success. And I had, I had, you know, I had no real idea exactly what it was that, that so many people face in, in parts of this country because of the legacy of, of history and the ways that it continues to play out today. And so, you know, when I look back at myself, I just think, what a kind-hearted idiot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, which isn't a bad thing. You know, I think having a good heart can carry you forward, but I wasn't really prepared to have to understand what it was I was seeing or to have to separate my own like self-protective tendencies from, you know, from, from what it was that was, that was actually going to, was actually occurring. At, at what point did, had you made the decision that you would, yeah, after your two year stint was up, that you would head back, well, leave elsewhere, but, but head back to Oregon or, you know, or elsewhere. Um, you know, when did you make that decision? You know, I, I made it late in my late, I, I made it at some point in my second year. Um, it, the truth was that at that time that I was leaving once again because I had other people who I was, you know, paying attention to. Mm-hmm. I applied to only one graduate program, not understanding that I was applying to like, you know, the number five program in the country and I should probably have applied to many. I just applied at home because in Oregon is where supposedly, you know, my future was going to be. And I don't know what I would have done exactly if I had had a different set of choices, but I don't want to be, I, I, in no way could I pin this on somebody else to say that, you know, I I was following some sure thing or that I didn't in some ways want to be released from what it was that I was doing. Um, at the same time, you know, as, as I talk about in the book, I don't know that I'll ever really be able to let go of having left, mm-hmm. even though I wasn't going to have those same kids in the classroom again or whatever, right? right? Um, I, you know, 
I had I, I didn't probably teach as well as I could have. <laughs> that's for sure. And I also think that, you know, I think that we need people in those schools who are really committed to to doing what they can. Not that not that the solution to educational inequality is Teach for America mm-hmm. or outsiders coming in necessarily. Yeah. Um, but just that, you know, the person that I might have become if I was there could have been a better teacher. Upside is I wasn't meant to teach nine year olds. So yeah. yeah, I know that's a kind of a roundabout answer, but I'm not exactly sure how to answer that that question still because a part of me will always sort of look back and be um, be unable to answer the kid who was like, "Do you want to leave?" You know, mm-hmm. and what might I say? No, at least I wouldn't leave you, and you know, get me to a place with a coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, I want and, that. And, a, and, a, and a, you know what I mean? A, 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 a like a, a restaurant where I won't be sort of stared at. Yeah, you know. You know, you you detail so well the the day to day of being in the classroom and some of the some of that some of that takeaway, like when you get away when you when you're heading home. But you, what were the down time, down periods like when you were out of the classroom or or on the weekends or and even on Sunday as you're gearing up for another week? You know, you know, I had um I had roommates and I had a, I had three really close friends in. Uh, in the town that I was in, mm-hmm. um, or my roommate, um, and, and, you know, that community really carried me. It must be, yeah. These, keep these three women, it was very heavily yeah. women in the particular town that I was teaching in, which I call promise in the book. And then, yeah. um, and then I, uh, you know, and then my roommate, my second year was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was so much solidarity among the teachers at a school or in the people there. You know, it, it's not surprising that we sort of formed our own very small, tight friendships because we were sort of going through the same thing. Yeah, It's pretty yeah. common to anyone who's in a sort of core or, a, you know, um, cohort or something like that, right? Where they're training for something or they're doing something. And yeah. the intensity of what it was we were sort of doing was that there was also sort of the, the very broad demographics of just like the <laughs> – um, the, the elitism of the program, right, is pretty resounding. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what you had were immensely sort of intellectually capable and immensely educated young people doing something which they were completely out of their depth to actually be any good at. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's not surprising that we sort of, you know, we would hang out, we would go to a restaurant, someone would throw a party, you know, because we were often spread really far out in the Delta, you know, you would drive to a party 40 or 50 miles away and think nothing of it. Yeah. There were various professional events where you would do things and so on. So, you know, you needed those things as sort of an outlet and a release. So there was the weekends. And then with my friends in town, um, these, these three women and, and, uh, and Mr. My, my roommate and I, we would, uh, you know, we would often go places if we didn't have something else that was taking us. So we would be, yeah. you know, we would go into Oxford for the weekend to like, just sort of like hang out at the bookstore and the coffee shop and have, you know, have, have like restaurant food and, and stuff like that. Or we would go into Memphis a lot of times mm-hmm. eating food, you yeah. know, <laughs> or, uh, yeah. Or Jackson. Um, and so we, we, you know, we would often do that and take our stacks of grading there and just sort of like, you know, all crash in like one hotel room on the yeah. floor, whatnot. 
Very nice. So uh, before yeah, I want to be respectful of your time, I know you got to get going. Uh, but uh, just a couple, a couple more things. Like, uh, so what, what's, what's next for you right now? What are you working on now that's exciting you? And uh, yeah. Well, you know, so I'm always writing Oregon essays. Um, uh, yeah, I read sometimes about wrestling, and I read about growing up here, and I read about you know kayaking and running rivers. And I think I'll always continue that work that has to do with myself and my family. And um, I don't think of that necessarily as being a book-length project. Um, I found myself writing in some ways about gentrification and inequality in in Portland, and most particularly race right now. Mm -hmm. And I found myself writing some teaching essays as a result of sort of going through uh, Mr. Trump's election with students who are particularly affected by what it is that's just sort of happened um, and is happening in our country. but I don't know that those things will necessarily lead to a book-length project. Um, right now I'm working on a, on a novel uh, or a novel in stories, I guess we might call it, that are sort of in the voices of kids in a, who knew a, a fictional Mississippi town <laughs> and the Asian teacher that they encounter there. Um, Not the least sort of the opposite, <laughs> the opposite in some ways or the flip side of what it is that this book is. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I'm pretty far into that and, and I have high hopes for, for where it might go. It's a, you know, it's a difficult book to sort of get the buy-in for because on the one hand, rightfully, um, we're at a time where, where black people are demanding the right to represent themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is, and that is absolutely their right. And at the same time, we have a general literary audience who is not particularly interested in reading a book in which black children or poor black children are speaking mm-hmm. where the book is not sort of, um, let's say telling you some sort of happy or simple story. Um, let alone yeah. a book in which those things are meeting and, you know, sort of like the book that I already wrote, there's, you know, an outsider who comes in and there's this sort of strange world. So we'll see what ends up happening with it. Yeah, but it sounds like, as you were alluding to earlier, you know, you trust trusting your gut and your instincts here. So the, it sounds like the the way you want to write the story is like I, you probably are going to keep pursuing that because it's just kind of what feels right for you. I'm nearly done with it, and I, yeah. you know, I, t- to be fair with it, I think I should say that you know, uh, portions of it have been published in some very very good magazines or a lot of the individual chapters, and yep. I think I'm very close to maybe maybe finding some homes for it at very very good venues. Great. Um, and so, you know, I, parts of it, I should say, because it's published like that. Yeah. I, I, I believe in the book and I think awesome. it will find a home finally. Um, and, you know, it would be nice to let that go too, because yeah. I've been working on that project as long as I've been working on, you know, any of this material in some way. So yeah. if I release this memoir after 12 years, you can imagine carrying something else around 14, right? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> it, I'm ready to, to let that, to let that go. But in the meantime, I'm always going to be writing nonfiction because, yeah, you know, I, in some ways, I am an essayist. I think, yeah, whatever else I am, and um, and I it found sort of my groove in that. You know, at some point, you stop trying to be the writer that you're not. Yeah, <laughs> just sort of accept what you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, lastly, Mike, uh, where can people find you online and and try to find find your work? I'll sorry, I'll try to link to everything I can in show notes. But like, where can people find you? Yeah, so um, mikecopperman.com has a lot of information about the book and there's direct tabs where you can, you know, order from, from indie bound, um, or Amazon if you wish. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think a Google search of my name tends to yield a bunch of things as well that are out there. Okay. Um, but the website's a pretty good start in terms of getting a sense of at least this book project 
and I'm I'm excited. You know, right now we're um, we're well, we've we're nearly sold out the first print run. Um, oh, that's awesome. So if you know if your readers want to get a first edition copy of this book, they should get it sooner. But yeah. strangely enough, this book has found some traction and some readers. So yeah, it's well, it's a, a pleasure to sort of let that happen, and and so hopefully, you know, hopefully folks would find it and uh, help keep that rolling. Yeah, it's a powerful book and I think beautifully written and beautifully told and it's uh yeah, I've read it in over 2 days. It was I, mean, I could I was always looking forward to like just getting back to it and that's a uh, sort of the highest compliment I can give for a book is that when I put it down I just I and I have to do something else. I'm always thinking about it and I want to get back to it. So just well done Mike and this uh and keep up the great work. I can't wait to read what comes out next from you. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation and to talk, you know, writing and craft um, and childhood. <laughs> yeah, with, uh, you know what? With, with, all, uh, with, it, with another writer. It so. all informs uh, what we're doing today for sure. So uh, anyway, thanks so much, Mike, and uh, we'll be in touch for sure. Great. Thanks all for right. having me. Take care, Mike. Yeah, you too. If you've made it this far, I've got a treat for you. I have two hardcover first printing copies of Mike Copperman's teacher and he will sign and personalize them and the first two people to email me go find it, it's not too hard I will ship personalized signed first editions of Mike's wonderful book teacher and I mail it to you at my expense as a thank you for listening. So, what are you waiting for? Get in line.